I hope you are as excited as I am to continue our study through the book of Philippians this morning, especially after the Sunday school hour that we enjoyed from Pastor Rob and that charge from the Gospel of John from Pastor Mike. Um, My heart is overflowing with excitement, and I hope that yours is as well at this time. Many of you will recall from last week that we began our expositional series through the Epistle of Joy by considering the two opening verses of chapter 1. And it's my prayer that the first study in that letter, this letter to the Philippians, was able to establish a foundation that we can build off in the work in the weeks to come. Uh, I, I pray that this letter will provide us with much to think about regarding how we can display a posture of joy before a watching world. So as we prepare to transition into the body of Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, I now want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles, if you're not there already, to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 1, and for our scripture reading over the next few Lord's Days, we're going to read the totality of what the Apostle Paul writes in verses 3 through 11. Verses 3 through 11 of Philippians chapter 1, that's going to be our scripture reading over the next probably three Lord's Days, or at least the three Lord's Days that I'll be in the pulpit. But for our purposes today, our primary focus will be allocated to verses 3 through 6. Philippians chapter 1 Beginning in verse 3, you follow along with me in your copy of God's word as I read. Paul writes, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And this is the word of the living God. May he write its eternal truths upon our hearts this morning and all the days of our life. In the early 1990s, a Southern Baptist minister named Gary Chapman introduced a literary franchise that has captivated millions of people over the last three decades. The title of that literary franchise was The Five Love Languages, and it was originally established to help married couples grow in how they manifested their love toward one another. According to Chapman, there are five love languages that correlate with how different people prefer to give and receive love. I found this fascinating. He says there are acts of service, physical touch, quality time, receiving gifts, and words of affirmation. Now, as many of you can imagine, much of what Chapman says about these five love languages are rooted in surveying human psychological and sociological tendencies. That doesn't necessarily mean that everything Chapman says in the literary franchise is false, but it does mean that the bulk of his reasoning is tethered to what he believes to be evident from the realm of nature. Given the presence of very few scripture references cited throughout uh, the book, the five love languages, and the subsequent volumes that followed in that franchise, I think Chapman would agree with that assessment. Based on human, psychological, and sociological tendencies, Human beings tend to manifest love in in these five distinct categories or in a combination of those categories. But what if I told you that there is a love language revealed in the pages of Scripture? What if I told you that God's Word provides us with an objective and unchanging model as to how believers can manifest love toward one another? Not something rooted in human Uh, psychological or sociological tendencies that are ultimately tethered to secular scholarship, but what if I told you in God's inerrant, inspired, and infallible word, there is a love language that believers can manifest toward one another? Well, as we'll soon examine from verses 3 to 11 of chapter 1, the Apostle Paul sets forth one of the greatest expressions of Christian love that we find in the canon 
of Scripture. Aside from the parenthetical statements that Paul makes in verses 7 and 8, Paul uses this opening section of Philippians, the opening section in his body, the body of his letter to the Philippians, he uses this section to reveal how intercessory prayer is one of the deepest acts of love that one can show toward other people. Intercessory prayer is one of the deepest acts of love that we can show toward other people. We may call this Scripture's love language, according to the Apostle Paul. When taking this, uh, this letter's broader context into our consideration, we discover that one of the most instrumental ways that a Christian can cultivate joy in their lives is also found through coming to the throne of grace. So, so if, if, if the love language of Scripture is modeled in intercessory prayer, so also we could say that the, the vehicle or the instrument, at least one of the vehicles or instruments that can be used for cultivating joy in the life of a believer is by coming before God's heavenly throne in prayer, not only for themselves, but also for other people. As one commentator has rightly said, our prayer life must not be self-centered. It must arise not only because we feel our own needs as a burden we must lay upon God, but also because we are so bound up in love for our fellow men that we feel their need as acutely as our own. Therefore, to make intercession for men is one of the most powerful and practical ways in which we can express our Christian love towards them. End quote. Brethren, as we reflect on verses 3 through 11 in the weeks to come, it's my sincere prayer that our love for both Christians and non-Christians will be greatly expanded as we observe how the Apostle Paul intercedes for the church at Philippi. And although there's certainly far more that we could say in this particular text, we could spend uh, weeks and weeks and weeks on this chunk of Scripture. It's rich with biblical and theological and practical significance. I want to set before us at least 11 characteristics for all Christians to emulate in their prayers for other people. That's what we're going to be looking at uh, today, and in a couple weeks from now, we'll pick up in our, in our covering of these specific verses. But over the, over the course of our study in this chunk of Scripture, I want to highlight at least 11 characteristics found in the text that emulate how Christians should pray for one another. If we can pray like the Apostle Paul for one another, I'm sure God will do far more than we could ever think ask, or imagine. So for our purposes today, looking at verses 3 through 6, we're just going to look at the first six of those 11 characteristics. Six characteristics of intercessory prayer as found in verses 3 through 6 of Philippians 1. Note first, characteristic number one, in the opening words of verse 3, intercessory prayer should be personal. Intercessory prayer should be personal. When Paul uses the phrase, I thank my God, he underscores a twofold reality in reference to the personal nature of intercessory prayers that he offers on behalf of the Philippian congregation. On the one hand, it must be noted that this is Paul's prayer for the Philippians. Although there were other first century believers who would have wholeheartedly echoed the substance of Paul's prayer, although Paul was with Timothy when he wrote this letter, Paul wants this first century church to know specifically that he himself is bringing them before the throne of grace on a regular basis. Paul's not content with simply saying that the apostles are praying for you or Timothy and I are praying for you. No, Paul, he's emphatic. He wants to communicate that the Philippians are being prayed for by him. Paul himself is bringing this first century church before the throne of grace. So as Paul goes on to lay out the substance of his prayers for the Philippians in the forthcoming verses, he is resolved for this church to be encouraged by the fact that one of their spiritual heroes of the faith loves them enough, cares for them enough, that he takes the time to pour into them not only biblically and theologically, but also from afar insofar that he brings them to God in intercessory prayer. But second reality we see undergirding this heading of intercessory prayer being personal, the opening words in verse 3 illustrate that Paul viewed prayer as a profoundly intimate exchange with the triune God. 
When Paul uses the phrase, my God, he is showcasing the depths of his intimate fellowship with his heavenly Father. Contrary to the religious expressions that we find modeled throughout the first century Greco-Roman world, Paul did not view his relationship to God as something impersonal or distant. He didn't view God as some, some foreign entity out there that he couldn't intimately relate to or relate to on a distinctly personal level. Instead, my friends, Paul was thoroughly convinced that the same God who was infinitely holy, infinitely transcendent above all creation, this God was the same one he could call Abba, Father. My friends, there is an intimacy with prayer that the Apostle Paul knew and that we as Christians should likewise know in our 21st century context. For Paul, the God who knew every star by name was also the same God who knew Paul himself as the apple of his eye in Christ. So unlike any other religion in the world, Christians have the incredible privilege of rightly calling the creator and sustainer of all things, my God, my Father in heaven. There's a personal richness to the believer's communion with the Most High that that other religions cannot offer and do not offer. We have this, brethren, because of Christ. And this is the privilege, one of the many privileges that we have in our intercessory prayer for other believers. One of the most simple and straightforward cross-references that speak to the the intimacy that God promises us in prayer is James 4.8. I mean, it doesn't get any more simple or straightforward than, than, than this in James. He says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. As we make it a habit of our lives to come before the throne of grace, God, because he is rich in mercy, because he's a loving father, he, as it were, will reveal himself in more experiential and tender ways. There will be a cultivating of unique personal fellowship and intimacy with God as we are faithful to draw to him in our prayers, not only for ourselves, but also for others. I must ask you here today, brethren, does this describe your relationship with God this morning? Do you believe the promise of James 4.8 that as you draw near to God, he will likewise in time be found faithful to draw near to you? By faith, you regard your prayer life as a powerful means to lay hold of the God who has promised to work all details in your life for your eternal good and for your glory, or for God's glory. You believe that today. You believe that God will work powerfully through prayer, and that prayer is an intimate, personal means of fellowship with God and expressing love towards other believers. This is the posture that we find modeled and exhibited by Paul in the very beginning of verse 3, and it's one that we need to adapt in our day as well. And that brings us to the second characteristic that we can consider from this morning's verses. The second characteristic for Christians to emulate in their efforts to intercede on behalf of other people. As we just saw from the opening words of verse 3, intercessory prayer should be personal. Or excuse me, it should be personal and it should be thankful. We saw that intercessory prayer should be personal, but it should also be thankful. There should be a thankfulness undergirding our prayers and our communion with the living God. The Apostle Paul's prayers for the Philippian congregation were the fruit of a heart that overflowed with thanksgiving to God. My friends, if we're not thankful, if we're not grateful to God for all of the rich blessings he has lavished upon us in Christ, both temporal and spiritual, if that's not us, our prayer life is going to be greatly Hindered, And we're certainly not going to be one who overflows with expressions of praise as we seek to draw near to God in prayer. Out of all the things that Paul could have said to begin the body of this epistle, I think it's, I think it's foundational. I think it is incredible. I think it reveals something of Paul's piety that he begins the body of this letter by expressing his gratitude for the people to whom he writes. He could have started this letter off in so many different ways, and he wants to let these These precious first century saints know, I'm grateful for you. I'm thankful to God for you, for what God's doing in your congregation and what you mean to me. And although he certainly had a special relationship with the Philippian congregations, Paul made it a habit, if you read the New Testament, Paul made it a habit 
to repeatedly express his thankfulness and gratitude for all of his brothers and sisters in Christ that were scattered abroad in the first century world. Let me just give you a few examples from the New Testament. You can jot these down if you're taking notes, or you can try to keep up as we flip through the New Testament. But Romans 1, verses 8 through 10. Romans 1, verses 8 through 10. Paul, he, he, he starts... State verses into the body of his epistle to the Romans. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of the Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you in my prayers. There's a thankfulness to Paul's prayer. There's a personal dimension to his prayer. 1 Corinthians 1. In verses 4 and following, I thank my God. There's thankfulness and personalness in this introduction to the Corinthians letter. He says, I thank my God always concerning you, Corinthians, for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by him, in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. And then he goes on and on to describe the implications of that reality, of that extension of God's grace to the people of Corinth. Ephesians 1, 15 and 16. He writes, after that glorious introduction to this letter, he says, I, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers personalness to his prayers and a thankfulness to God's prayer, or to Paul's prayers to God. Colossians 1, 3 through 4. He says, we, now, he, now he's using a first person plural, we give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, always praying for you. Thankfulness and also his personal love and, and, and appreciation for these saints. Verse 4, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints. First Thessalonians 1, verses 2 through 4, as we continue to make our way through Paul's New Testament letters. He says, we give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ and the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election of God. And by the way, this, this verse, uh, this, this section of Scripture of course, we can make the same argument from the previous ones that we read, but prayer does not exclude meditating on the riches of divine truth, right? Paul is talking about how grateful he is thinking about the reality of the Thessalonians' election. So, so there's a depth even to prayer. We can be thankful in prayer. We can be personal in prayer and also still uh, balance that out with the, the deep truths of God. We don't need to be those who are Christian intellects at the exclusion of prayer, we also don't need to be those who only pray and don't put any thought or substance into the content of what we're praying. 2 Thessalonians verses 3 through 5 of chapter 1, Paul writes, We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith and all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you suffer. 2 Timothy 1, 3-5. Again, I thank God, Paul writes, I thank God, whom I serve with a pure conscience as my forefathers did, as without ceasing I remember you in my prayers day and night, greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears, that I may be filled with joy when I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded is in you. And then last example of Paul's thankfulness in his prayers, Philemon Chapter 1, only one chapter in Philemon, but Philemon 1 and verses 4 through 6. Again, I thank my God, making mention of you always in my prayers, hearing of your love and faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints, that the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. I know it's a lot of scripture to work through, but I wanted to emphasize this point, brethren. 
There is a personal flavor to Paul's prayers. And there is a thankful emphasis in his prayers. They're not mutually exclusive. They're dovetailed together with Paul. He, he notes that God is his God. He notes that these are his prayers for the brethren that he is writing these letters to. But at the same time, he's also emphasizing that I am so thankful for the work God's doing in you and through you and for what you mean to my life and ministry. I can't help but share that with you. Right at the outset of the letters that I'm writing to this local church, whatever local church you want to tie these letters back to. We have many applications we can take away from these texts of Scripture, but just a few questions to ponder today. Does the testimony of your life, and specifically your prayer life, reflect not just the personal element of prayer, but also a thankful element of prayer, both for yourself as well as for those God's put in your life? Would those closest to you, those who know you best, not not those who you see on Sunday and Wednesdays, but those who see you behind closed doors or at work, would they say that your life is marked by a personal conviction that God is the source of every good thing and blessing that you enjoy in this life? Would they say that you're a thankful person? Would, you say, would they say that you carry yourself in such a way that there's a conviction about you that you have an intimate fellowship with your Creator and with the God of your salvation? Is that evident? Is that tangible in your life? Is the trajectory of your life geared towards making intercessory prayers at all? Do you find that your prayer life is exclusively about you? Or are you someone who can't help but make intercessions for those God's placed around you? Family, friends, church, co-workers, neighbors, people you meet at the grocery store. Are you one who prays for others? The Apostle Paul certainly was. That's what we see modeled here in the opening words of Paul's first chapter to the Philippians, and I pray that we as a, as a corporate assembly of faith, we as a body of believers here at ERBC, my prayer, and I hope it's your prayer as well, that we would be those who are thankful, we are those who have a personal relationship with God that's evidenced through how we, how we talk to others, how we live our lives, and ultimately how we pray for others as well. But let's go to the third characteristic now from this text. The third characteristics for Christians to emulate in their efforts to make intercessions on behalf of others. We find this in verse 4. Paul notes, verse 4, that he makes always in every prayer of mine, he makes requests for you all. Always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all. I've titled this section, this section of Scripture as, Intercessory Prayer Should Be Consistent. There's a consistency to Paul's prayers for the Philippian brethren. Intercessory prayer should be consistent. The man who exhorted the Thessalonians to pray without ceasing is the same man who prayed without ceasing for the Philippian brethren. So, so Paul was one who practiced what he preached. He says, pray without ceasing, Thessalonians. Hey, Philippians, let me show you how I model this behavior in my own life. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying, and by extension, don't misunderstand what Paul's saying. Although it's physically impossible for Christians to pray during every waking moment of their life, believers are exhorted in Scripture to maintain a posture of prayer or an attitude of prayer or a willingness to pray as they navigate the ebbs and flows of their daily life. This is the behavior that Paul is referring to as he continues the progression of his thoughts here in chapter 1 of Philippians, and specifically verse 4. I found one commentator on, on kind of the Greek wording of this verse particularly helpful. This commentator says that the specific word that Paul uses for always does not refer to uninterrupted praying, but rather it means that on every occasion that Paul does pray, he remembers the Philippians. Thus, perhaps a more literal wording of verse 4 would be, whenever I pray, I am making requests for you all, or in all of my prayers, I make request for you all, end quote. So if we interpret verse 4 from this perspective, we could say that Paul made it a, a regular habit to pray for the Philippians. When those saints randomly came to Paul's mind, he would have been eager 
to pray for them. When Paul would receive updates about the state of the Philippian congregation, he would have been diligent to lift these men and women up before God's throne of grace. When Paul would have quiet time with the Lord, the church at Philippi would have regularly been included in his intercessions. Just as the Apostle Paul modeled a lifestyle of consistency in his efforts to intercede on behalf of God's people, so also are we called to do the same in our walk with the Lord. Thanks be to God that ERBC has already provided us with many ways in which we can model a consistent life of intercessory prayer. We have a prayer calendar that helps guide us in how we can be praying for members of our congregation each day of a given month. We have a special prayer service on Sunday morning, the first Sunday morning of each month. We have a special prayer service along with our our corporate prayer meeting on Wednesday nights where we intentionally make intercessions for one another's prayer requests, for other like-minded ministries in the country and all throughout the world, and for a number of different needs that get brought up on a week-to-week or on a month-to-month basis. We should praise God that in His kindness, we are a church that is modeling this pattern of consistent intercessory prayer. My friends, there's something special about coming alongside God's people to pray for one another. And there's something special about in your own prayer closet, whatever that looks like. It may not literally be a closet, but in the quiet of your own life, in the privacy of your own life. There's something powerful, there's something unique about going before God in prayer and over the course of weeks, months, or years, seeing God's goodness and answering those prayers as He sees fit to do so. At the practical level, for for you and your individual life, for me and my individual life, and for us corporately as a local church, my prayer is that we would remain faithful to utilizing the various outlets that we have for intercessory prayer in our church. Maybe you're here today and and you don't come on Wednesdays, or, or you don't come consistently on Wednesdays. Maybe you don't come the first Sunday of the month when we have the afternoon prayer time. My friends, on the basis of what we just considered from Paul, Do everything you can to to prioritize those gatherings week in and week out. There's nothing more that that Satan and and, and the demons love than when Christians are content to forsake prayer, and specifically intercessory prayer in a corporate setting. Build your week, build your life around not just our times of corporate worship, but also our times of prayer, which corporate prayer time is also corporate worship as well. Make prayer just as much emphasis in your life, individually and collectively, as you would studying God's Word or studying doctrine uh, or gathering for fellowship with other believers. As the old saying goes, if you want to see how popular a church is, you'll go to Sunday morning service. If you want to see how popular a preacher is, you'll go to Sunday evening service. If you want to see how popular God is, you'll go to the prayer meeting. My friends, may it be said of our congregation, collectively and individually, may it be said of us that we place no greater importance on the knowing and communion with the triune God. May that be at the top of our list, week in, week out. We look at our schedule, we look at our calendar. Your thought, my thought would be, I'm going to pray with God's people. I'm going to pray for God's people individually. I'm going to go and pray with God's people. I'm going to see what God does in time because I know he's good. I know he's powerful. I know he uses prayer as a means of accomplishing what he's decreed from before the foundation of the world. I'm going to be a part of that for his glory and for the good of his people. That takes us now to the fourth characteristic for Christians to emulate and their efforts to intercede on behalf of others. And this characteristic really permeates all of verses 3 through 11. Note with me, intercessory prayer should be intentional. Intercessory prayer should be intentional. As the Apostle Paul develops his model for intercessory prayer in verses 3 through 6 and verses 9 through 11 of chapter 1, again, verse 7 and 8 kind of being a parenthetical statement that Paul makes, he does so with an an intentionality. There, There is a observable degree of intentionality undergirding Paul's view of intercessory prayer. On seven particular occasions, at least that I could count, you may find six or eight, and check me on that if you like, but on seven particular occasions that I counted, we find Paul making it clear to the Philippians that he is specifically making intercession on their behalf. And you notice in some of the scripture readings that we did, I really try to emphasize the you 
the repeated use of you and your throughout this section of Philippians, it unveils that this church at Philippi had a special place in Paul's prayer. But to make this intentionality even more apparent, the end of verse 4 signifies that Paul wasn't merely praying in generalities for the Philippians. He was praying for each individual represented in that local church. At the end of verse 4, Paul says, I make requests for you all. Of course, there, there, there's the corporate gathering. He's praying for the, the corporate assembly at Philippi. But there's a sense here where, where Paul is praying for every individual in that fellowship. Notice, he, he doesn't say he's only making requests for the elders and deacons. He, he doesn't say that he only makes requests for the more popular, or the more highly esteemed, or maybe the more wealthy members of that congregation. There are very few, if any, who are deemed wealthy by worldly standards in that local church. But nevertheless, Paul says he's going to his Lord and Savior on behalf of every beloved saint in Philippi. And isn't this precisely what we see our Lord and Savior doing for each of his beloved children? As we discover in John 17, 20, Jesus doesn't only pray for the apostles and his disciples in the first century. It says in John 17, 20, that he also prayed for those who would believe in him through their word. So, so, so Jesus, he doesn't just pray for the spiritual elite or, or the ones who were maybe closest to him in proximity. He, he prayed for all believers who would come to faith through the word and testimony of the apostles and the first century disciples who God raised up to establish the church. So in his high priestly prayer, Jesus displays how he intercedes for the collective assembly of all who would come to saving faith. And then, if I could drive this, home, this point home even further, notice Hebrews 7.25. In Hebrews 7.25, we see that Christ's work of intercessory prayer, his work as our great high priest, it goes all the way down to the level of individual and specific believers. The writer of the Hebrews declares that Jesus is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Friend, if you're here today and you're a Christian, I want you to know that the same one who has your name inscribed upon his hands, that one, he's the same God. He's the same Lord. He's the same Savior. He's the same King who intercedes on your behalf before God the Father. Jesus Christ makes intercession for you today, believer, and for me. And His prayers are always answered. He always prays in accordance to God's good and perfect will. And if the prayer of a righteous man availeth much, how much more so would the prayer of the, the spotless, righteous, impeccable King of glory avail much? Christ intercedes for you, brethren. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the great high priest who not only prays for the collective assembly of believers, but he also prays for every individual who comes to know him through faith. If this was the Apostle Paul's example of having an intentionality in his prayer, if this was Christ's example in modeling intentionality with his prayer, how much more so should we follow suit? And that brings us to the fifth characteristic for all Christians to emulate in their prayer for one another. Notice Verse 5, on the basis of verse 5, we can say that intercessory prayer should be gospel-fueled. The gospel should fuel our efforts to make intercessions on behalf of others. As we see in verse 5, Paul says that he thanks God for the Philippian fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, verse 5 is sandwiched in the middle of Paul's thought, which really extends back into verse 3. The word for, beginning of verse 5, it indicates the central reason or the central basis for why Paul opens up the body of his letter to the Philippians with an expression of intercessory prayer and praise for the Philippians. Why does he begin this way? Well, well he begins this way because Paul's expression of intercessory prayer and praise it was ultimately rooted, it was grounded in the common partnership that they enjoyed in gospel ministry. When Paul expresses his thankfulness to the Philippians, he, he, he's doing so from at least two perspectives. So, so he's, he's expressing his thankfulness for the Philippians' fellowship in the gospel from at least two distinct perspectives. On the one hand, 
Number one, perspective number one. Paul was grateful for the common zeal that the Philippians had for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that we should likewise have a zeal for the gospel as well. As we can see from verses 27 to 30 of chapter 1 and verses 1 to 11 of chapter 3 in this letter, the Philippians were facing hostility and persecution that came as a result of their Christian faith. There was legitimate cost to being a follower of Jesus Christ in the first century Roman Empire. This congregation in Philippi and believers by and large living in this era, in this place in world history, this era in world history, this geographical location in world history, they would have faced intense persecution and opposition from the Roman government. Nero Caesar had been in reign for some time when Paul writes this letter to the Philippians. Uh, these believers would have been confronted with false teaching. He had the Judaizers who were rearing their ugly heads, teaching false doctrine throughout the first century world. Paul deals with them at great length in Galatians. There's reason to believe they were also impacting the church at Philippi when he writes this letter. They would have been mocked by the pagans residing in the Roman Empire. The, the, the Christians, they're cannibals. They, they commit incest. They're crazy. There would have been mocking and ridicule to the Philippians on top of these other major threats, theological and very practical, that they were facing when Paul writes this letter. But from the first day of their establishment as a local church, the Philippians were wholeheartedly committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like Paul, the Philippian brethren were willing to face whatever consequences or hardships may come their way as a result of proclaiming Christ in him crucified. They had a zeal for the gospel that outweighed any fear of death or persecution. And my friends, death and persecution was very real for these people. But they were zealous for the glory of God and for the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were partners with Paul in that zeal. And this was at the crux of Paul's prayer of thanksgiving for them. It's one of the main reasons why he begins this letter with a prayer of of thanksgiving, with a declaration of thanksgiving. There's also a second key thought or a second key perspective that Paul would have had in mind as he expressed praise for the Philippians. Second perspective or second key thought that Paul would have had in mind. Paul praised God that the Philippians' zeal for the gospel was their fuel and support of gospel advancement. Up to this point in Paul's ministry, he was a first-hand witness to how the Philippians offered financial support to those who labored in gospel outreach. As we read from Paul later on in verses 15 to 16 of chapter 4, Paul, Paul writes, he says, Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica you sent aid once and again, for my necessities. So the testimony of a generous church. Although they were a congregation made up of, of lower to middle class at best, the Philippians were a profoundly generous people. These believers recognized that their financial resources ultimately belonged to God alone. They, they were committed to faithfully stewarding their money and all of their time, talents, and treasure for the building up of God's kingdom. Paul's reaction to these specific characteristics exhibited by the Philippians only fueled his expressions of praise to God for their work in gospel ministry. It should likewise be the case when we consider those who we fellowship with in the gospel. As a local church, we should make it our habit to praise God for the work he's doing through like-minded ministry partners and to continually seek out ways in which we can support them in their efforts to advance the gospel both locally and internationally. Like the Apostle Paul, our prayers should be shaped by a desire to see the gospel spread to the lost, to see the gospel defended from heretical opponents, and to see the gospel ultimately spread to all nations that those who God has predestined to eternal life might come to faith at the appointed time. This is the essence of what it means to have intercessory prayer that's gospel-fueled. We praise God for those who partner with us in the gospel. They're zealous for the gospel. They're like-minded theologically. And then we also praise God for those who give time, talent, and treasure that the gospel might go forth through all the ends of the earth. We need to make this part of our regular intercessory prayers, and I trust that 
Uh, as I've seen over the past three weeks, this is being modeled very well at the corporate level by ERBC. May we also likewise do that in our individual lives as well. But now, we've, we've considered five characteristics of intercessory prayer from the Apostle Paul, five, five uh, elements that we can emulate uh, both at the individual level and at the corporate level. We've seen that intercessory prayer should be personal. We've observed that inter- intercessory prayer should be thankful. We've considered that intercessory prayer should be consistent. We've noted that intercessory prayer should be intentional, and we've just finished contemplating that intercessory prayer should be gospel Field. In the last uh, few minutes that we have together, I want us now to discover that that sixth characteristic or that sixth element that we can observe from Paul's model of intercessory prayer, and it's this. Intercessory prayer should be confident in God's sovereignty. Intercessory prayer should be confident in God's sovereignty. The, the last word of verse 4 indicates that Paul's expression of intercessory prayer for the Philippians was the outworking of the joy that he had in Christ. And as you recall from our time together last week, we said that joy is a definitive mindset. Joy is a definitive mindset that allows one to look beyond their personal situation to the sovereign God who stands above all circumstances and ultimately works out those circumstances for his glory and for the good of his people. Or if I could condensed that a little bit, as I did last week as well, joy is an inner sense of well-being that does not depend on external circumstances. This perspective of joy explains how Paul could write such a glorious description of praise despite being in Roman imprisonment at the time that he writes this letter. How could Paul have joy in the midst of his hard circumstances? Well, he was confident in the sovereignty of God. Paul's eyes were ultimately fixated on the sovereign king of the universe. In the midst of his dire circumstances, he could have an inner sense of well-being because he knew who sat on the throne of the universe and of the throne of human history. And as we see from Paul's opening prayer in Philippians, the culmination of Paul's joy in Christ and the culmination of Paul's joy for the Philippians' relationship with Christ, it comes to its climax in verse 6. So Paul has joy because he's confident in God's sovereignty. Then he explicitly says that he's confident in God's sovereignty. In verse 6, he says, I am confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now the key to unlocking the meaning of verse 6 hinges on what is meant by the phrase good work. What's Paul saying when he says, that he who begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. What good work is Paul referring to? Some commentators argue that the good work Paul has in mind was the gospel ministry that he and the Philippians had already committed themselves to carrying out. And the basis for this particular interpretation comes off of what he's just finished saying in verse 5. They they would say, based on the immediate context of verse 6, Paul, if I could paraphrase, is saying this, and He's saying that the good work of gospel ministry that God has begun in the Philippians, it will be completed or continually performed, not just in them, but also throughout the body of Christ until the day of Christ, until the time of Christ's return. So some would say that the good work that Paul is referring to, it's the gospel ministry that he and the Philippians are carrying out. That good work of gospel advancement, it will continue to go out until the day of of Christ. That's from the perspective of those who take this interpretation. On the other hand, there are some commentators who've argued that the good work that Paul has in mind is salvation itself. That that it's the salvation that accompanies the gospel message going forth to the nations. And this interpretation is largely supported by how Paul uses the verbs begun and perfect in different New Testament contexts. A key example would be found in Galatians chapter 3 verses 2 and 3. Paul uses these two verbs within the same context to refer to the divine act of salvation. He writes in that section of Galatians, he says, This only I want to learn from you, Galatians. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit? Are you now being made perfect by the flesh? So so people who take this second view would take a text like Galatians 3 and say, on the basis of interpreting Scripture with Scripture, it seems clear that, the good work Paul's talking about in verse 6, 
It's just, he's talking about salvation. Now, there's godly men on both sides of this interpretive spectrum, but in the final analysis, I think regardless of which interpretation you take, you're, you're, you're essentially affirming the same central truth that Paul is affirming in this section of Philippians. Here's the, here's the central point that Paul's making. Since God is absolutely sovereign, nothing can ever prevent him from finishing what he starts. Since God is absolutely sovereign, nothing can prevent him from finishing what he starts. Whether that's the, the, the proclamation and the advancement of the gospel from the first century on till Christ returns, or whether it's salvation. In either of those perspectives, nothing can ever prevent God from finishing what he starts. Why? Because he's absolutely sovereign. When considering the future of gospel ministry, there will never be an age in which the gospel is not proclaimed. God will be faithful to allow his message of salvation to be proclaimed to all the nations until the second coming of Jesus Christ. Matthew 24, 14. Jesus says the following. He he says that the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Nothing can squelch the gospel being advanced. God is sovereign. He's redeeming a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. He will see that come to fruition because he's sovereign. Nothing can ever stand in the accomplishment. Nothing can ever stand in the way of the accomplishment of his purposes. But in conjunction with this promise... God has also promised to to continue the accomplishment of every believer's salvation. For every true Christian, God has promised that nothing can ever prevent them from persevering in their salvation. In other words, salvation can never be lost. Those who God justifies will be positionally and progressively sanctified, and those who are positionally and progressively sanctified will ultimately be glorified. There's no exceptions to that reality. We just read one of the classic proof texts a few weeks ago on the Lord's Day. John 6, 37 to 40. Our Lord, he says this, he makes the following affirmation. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. My friends, as we cling to these precious promises from Scripture, how could we not pray with confidence in God's sovereignty? Since God is absolutely sovereign over all of reality, since nothing can ever thwart the accomplishment of God's good and perfect purposes, we can come to Him in prayer knowing that He has the power to answer our requests in accordance with His perfect will. There's no prayer request that you and I can ever give to God that if He's willing to bring it to pass, He's not powerful enough or sovereign enough to do so. You ever ever think about that? You can never pray too big for God. If it's his will to use our feeble prayers to accomplish his eternal purposes, he will do it, and nothing will stand in his way. Nothing will. Brethren, may we keep these truths embedded in our our hearts and our minds as we spend time with God in prayer, especially as we make intercessions for those who God has placed in our lives. This was Paul's practice that he modeled in the first century. May we be faithful in the 21st century to do the same. But as we close, I have to say, uh, before we can follow in the examples that we've considered from the Apostle Paul, we first have to be those who've trusted in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. As the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verses 7 and 8, unregenerate human beings, they're hostile to God. They cannot obey God from the heart. Unregenerate beings can do nothing in and of themselves. Unregenerate creatures, unbelieving humanity, they can do nothing in and of themselves to please God. So as we've considered all these examples today, if you're here today and you're not a believer, you can't truly adhere to this instruction that we've considered. While there are many unbelievers who pray to false gods, and while there are certainly many unbelievers who pray to the one true living God in vain, only Christians have the spiritual capacity to follow in Paul's example of intercessory prayer. 
Only Christians can carry out this instruction from the heart fueled by the Holy Spirit that dwells within them. So if you're here today and you find that you're not currently trusting in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, my plea with you, and this would be the plea from every other believer in here, turn away from your sins in repentance. Trust in the once-for-all finished work of Jesus Christ. Trust in His perfect life, His death on the cross, His bodily resurrection from the grave, His ascension into heaven, and His current intercession for all those who would ever believe. He always lives to make intercession for those who He came to save. For the believer, His prayers are always in accordance with God's will. They're always effectual. He is a good and faithful high priest. This could be your testimony today if you're not currently in Christ. Don't allow another moment to pass by where there's any doubt in your mind that you have surrendered your life to Christ's lordship by faith alone. And in doing so, that you can begin to walk in the sweetness of fellowship and communion with the triune God that is freely available to all that come to him by faith. If you're here today and you have any questions about what it means to be a believer, if you're here today and you have any questions about Anything that's been said today, please come find one of our elders after our time of worship. We'd be more than happy to minister to you and serve you, pray for you in any way that we can. But with that having been said, allow me to close uh, with a brief time of prayer, and then we'll draw our time of corporate worship to a conclusion here in just a few moments. So let's pray together, and we'll continue in our time. Our Father in heaven, we are amazed at the example of Christ-like love that we have seen reflected by Paul to the Philippian congregation Father, we thank you for preserving the book of Philippians over the past 2,000 years. We thank you that we can learn so many incredible truths from Paul's model of prayer every time we read the passage we've considered. And Father, we see a man who desired to not only commune with you in prayer, as great as that is, but Father Paul, he he was a man who made regular intercession on behalf of his brothers and sisters in Christ. And Father, I don't know how anyone can read a passage like this and not come away deeply challenged to grow, to grow in how they model the spiritual discipline of intercessory prayer. So, Father, please, by the power of your Holy Spirit, fuel us in our prayer. Propel us forward in our efforts as individuals and as a congregation to make intercessions on behalf of those you've placed in our lives. Father, we know from your word that you delight to Hear the prayers of your, chil- of your children. We know from your word, Father, that you are faithful to use the prayers of your people to accomplish your good and perfect purposes. So God, we ask, we pray, Father, that you would enable us to believe those truths by faith and to model a lifestyle of prayer, especially that of making intercessions for others. Father, as we come to the conclusion of our time this morning, we do ask that you would bless the remainder of our time together that you would allow us to return uh, safely for evening worship as we depart from here for a few hours. And most importantly, Father, we do ask that you would be pleased with our worship, that it would be conducted in spirit and in truth, that you'd be supremely glorified in everything that we say, do, and think on this Lord's Day. We love you, God, and we give you thanks for this time, and pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.